Welcome to the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal Author Insights Podcast. I'm Dr. Matthew Wappet, the DDNJ Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of the Utah State University Institute for Disability Research Policy and Practice. And it's my privilege to host this podcast. In fact, hosting this podcast is one of my favorite things to do. Um, it gives me a chance to talk to many different researchers and professionals who are out in the field today, making a difference, doing research, really trying to change the world for the better. Um, in fact, me many of the people that we have on the podcast are truly doing groundbreaking work that isn't getting the coverage I think that it really needs. And so we're excited that DDNJ provides a forum to share some of this new and innovative work. Um, the podcast itself is actually part of our ongoing commitment at DDNJ to increase the accessibility of our content for a wider readership. Uh, not everyone has time to sit down and read an entire article these days, let alone an entire issue of a journal. Uh, more and more people are choosing to get their information through podcasts and audiobooks. In fact, I think I've said this on earlier podcasts, but I have read more audiobooks this past year than I have read in physical using my eyes. Uh, but that's true. I mean, I've listened to more books than I've read. Um, and I think that may be a first for me, but I know that as my life gets busier, as I'm walking around, driving, whatever, I can listen and actually take in that content without having to stop and dedicate time to actually reading a book or a printed out article. So the launch of this podcast means that you and anyone can access DDNJ's content while you're on the go. And you can share it more readily across your social media platforms or other online venues where you might want to uh, yeah, get the word out about the work that you and your colleagues are doing. Uh, we recognize that it's important that we present our information through a wide range of media, and we hope that this podcast is going to provide another alternative for you to access the information within DDNJ. So with that said, probably don't need to say this, but please be sure to subscribe to our podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, wherever it is that you kind of aggregate and access your podcasts. And please leave us a rating and a review. And please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Your ratings, reviews, and shares really help us share the important work that's being done in the field today. And it helps get wider visibility for uh, the authors and for the journal. So with that said, I think that's really all of the housekeeping that I need to do today. Uh, I do want to, before we jump into today's interview, acknowledge that the authors who write these articles, and I think this happens with a lot of scholarly literature, um, are just a name on a page. We don't publish articles with uh, pictures of the authors, and it's rare to see video of authors talking about their work. And one of the fun things about this podcast is that it really acknowledges that authors are whole people. And it really acknowledges that they are more than a name on a page. And it's a chance to get to know these authors, get to know who they are behind the publication, and to get a better understanding of the many diverse voices who are working in the developmental disabilities field today. So we really hope this podcast provides some insights into what motivates these authors, where they get their ideas from, why they do what they do, and uh, why their work matters. So 
Today, we are especially privileged to have the opportunity to visit with Dr. Elizabeth Morgan and Ida Winters, who are two of the authors on an article entitled Paths to Equity, Parents in Partnership with USEDS Fostering Black Family Advocacy for Children on the Autism Spectrum. And this article is unique in that, yes, Dr. Morgan is the lead author on it, but there are several parents who participated in the entire process and who contributed and, and are acknowledged as authors on this work. Ida Winters is one of them, and we're excited to have her with us today and to share her experience uh, helping to pull together an academic publication. So by way of intro, uh, Elizabeth Holiday Morgan, Dr. Morgan, is an assistant professor in educational leadership at the University of California, Sacramento, and a program coordinator for uh, the USED at the MIND Institute. Her area of research focus includes early childhood and early intervention services with a specific interest in underrepresented populations. When she isn't thinking about autism service equity, Dr. Morgan enjoys the theater and spending time with her family and their dog, Billy Jean. So we have Dr. Morgan, who's joining us from California today. And then we have Ida Winters. Ida Winters is, most importantly, as I mentioned, a mother and an advocate. Ida is the mother of a son with autism. She's a former LEN trainee and has served as a family navigator with Mental Health America and as a group facilitator for the Autism Society of Southeastern Wisconsin, where she helps support other parents of children with autism. She is not a traditional academic, and this article in DDNJ, I believe, is her first publication as an author. So we're really excited to have the opportunity to hear her perspective and to share her thoughts with you today. So this episode, uh, as with all of them, I think, and of course I'm biased, but this episode is an important conversation that touches on many important topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the disability services. Uh, perhaps most importantly, this conversation really highlights the value and importance of honoring parents' experience and voice, and it provides some insights on how to effectively partner with parents for both advocacy and research. So as with other episodes, this episode also includes some fun sort of behind-the-scenes insights and some innovative ideas that maybe you can use to improve the work that you're doing in your respective teams and organizations. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Morgan and Ida Winters. Thank you, Dr. Morgan and Ida for joining us today for this conversation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to this work and how you came to be involved with this project? Um, and why don't we start with you, Dr. Morgan, and then we'll go to you, Ida, and we'll kind of alternate as we run through this conversation. Okay, that sounds great. Well, um, my name is uh, Elizabeth Morgan, and I'm an assistant professor at California State University, Sacramento, and I'm also a program coordinator at the UC Davis Mind Institute in our Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, which is one of 67 USEDs around the country. Um, and the way that I came to this work is that, first of all, I'm an educator by training. I always say I'm an educator at heart. So I started off as a classroom teacher, then I became a K administrator. And um, 
while I was doing that, I was involved and had many children that I was including in my schools or in my classroom um, with various disabilities and developmental disabilities. And so I came to the disability field as a general education uh, educator and knowing that, you know, a part of my job was to include and to effectively include children with various disabilities. Um, but over time, I think that my uh, passion, I would say, got even more intense because I became a parent. And when I became a parent, uh, two of my my two children both have developmental differences and my youngest is on the autism spectrum. And so I learned what it was like to be on the IEP table on the other side of the IEP table during that experience. And I one of the things I observed, both being a, a educator, but also a parent, is that when it came to Black parents in particular and families of color, um, families who are from historically marginalized populations, um, there were always uh, other things that were going on that were keeping them from being able to have uh, access uh, to information and as well as know how to be able to support their children and being um, effectively included in having their rights. So that led me to where I am today. Um, I went back to school after 13 years of being in the field uh, to get my doctorate and become a developmental scientist. And so I conduct empirical investigations specifically focusing on um, what are some of the barriers um, that are a part of our institutions, such as school institutions, medical institutions, um, that uh, keep us from being able to provide family-centered care um, and patient-centered care for Black disabled people and communities. And so um, that's really what led me to uh, the work and also the, the paper we're going to talk about. Now, how did you get involved with this project, Ida? I am a parent of three wonderful young men, um, all who have special health care needs. Um, my youngest son is on the autism spectrum, and a week before his 14th birthday is when he finally got a diagnosis of autism, which all, in all, all along I knew something was different with him, but I couldn't pinpoint what it was, and he got all different types of diagnosis, and but not the right diagnosis and he got all different types of medication but still he had things going on and i just you know searched everywhere turned over many rocks and nothing happened and then i started working i got the opportunity to work within the system and once i got work started working within the system learning about the system and how to research things I saw how many barriers were there for Black families and put up there and saw how easily services were obtained for other cultures versus for Black families. And I was like, unacceptable. Still didn't have a diagnosis for my son. I still hadn't gotten much assistance for my son, but I still wanted to start working with other Black families so we could get this system working in our favor together. So that became my mission. So um, I also wanted support in my community for Black families who were going through the same situations that I was going through. And um, I was 
a trainee with Wisconsin Lend at the time. And my mentor asked me, what did I want to do? What was missing in my community? And I told her support for Black families going through this um, with their children with special youth and children with special health care needs. And I wanted something and she introduced me to Elizabeth. So that's how I got involved with it. That's awesome. Well, it sounds like you both have personal experience that has that has informed this project. And I think that's definitely reflected in the article. Well, so the article actually just came out. Uh, it's entitled Paths to Equity, Parents in Partnership with USED's Fostering Black Family Advocacy for Children on the Autism Spectrum. So, um, you know, we kind of talked about how you came to this topic, but why is this specific issue so important? for disability related programs and specifically, I guess, for, you know, USEDs, but also schools, service providers, why is this topic so timely and important? I, you know, I think, first of all, this, this topic is something that I and I are both uh, personally connected to for, um, you know, and, and have, you know, intersectional uh, identities that make this topic so important. And I think that that's the reason why we need to have these discussions. Um, so, you know, in, in our systems of care, one of the charges that we actually give in the article um, is for providers, researchers, policymakers, those who have any influence to recognize that our systems that are set up have never been set up with Black families and Black children in mind, right? So whether it's school system or, uh, you know, or even our, our, our medical systems, if we look at the origins of those institutions in our country, um, they have excluded Black children and Black families. Um, and so when we think about why the uh, black families are having a hard time having access. Why black children are having a hard time to, to access? It's because you know the, the systems are functioning how they were set up to be, and so we just really need to recognize that you have that, and then you also think about the history of. Uh, exclusion for persons with disabilities in our country, right? So any system that's set up for people with disabilities is to exclude, right? And to keep them separate. Um, and so when you have intersectional identities, such as being Black and having a disability, you have this double oppressive experience, right? And it's almost, it's not like they are uh, two different things happening at once. It's because they're happening in in tandem, right? Together, they're, uh, they have they have their own experience as a result of, um, you know, being both a person of color, being a, a Black person, but then also having a disability. And therefore, we have to recognize how our systems have to really have an honest look at ourselves and those who was, of us who are um, in these institutions. Um, we need to have an honest look and think about what are the current practices, policies, um, and uh, personnel, right? How are we doing things um, and procedures, right? How are we doing things um, that will counter uh, the narrative, right? Will counter the way that um, our systems are set up to, to operate. We have to do things differently if we really want to support um, Black families and Black children. So I think this article in particular um, was really uh, powerful because we, centered the voices of the Black mothers who 
basically uh, partnered with our USEDs and our LENS um, to come up with programming that was not uh, was really about the the community giving influence about what they needed and what um, was necessary in order to provide family centered care and supports. And so um, this is really just highlighting that. And I think it could be an example for you know any institution that really wants to do the work of addressing systemic inequalities and uh, you know supporting and uplifting the the rights and the voices of marginalized populations. Yeah. Well, Ida, you were one of the mothers who participated in this. You were one of the voices that was highlighted in this article. Um, what specific barriers and challenges did you run into as you were seeking right services, a diagnosis and services for, for your son? Right. Um, so for me, there was lots of barriers at every turn. Um, starting off, um, there's a cultural barrier. Um, where I'm from, autism and a Black child is almost unheard of. Mm. So that piece is there first. And, you know, traditionally in our mind is discipline that comes first. Oh, they just need discipline or they're spoiled. Or a lot of times when you take them to the doctor or something like that, it's a boy. He'll grow out of it. Mm-hmm. Or he needs he just needs to be around his cousins a little more. You know, you know, he's not socialized or integrated into society a little more. Um, they didn't want him to stay in school. Um, with my son, he's the youngest of three and from K3 until fifth grade, I was at school with him either the whole day or half of the day. And I was a permanent chaperone on field trips. So you know what this looks like as far as me working and tending to the other children or anything else I had during the day. Doctor's appointments, we went in for evaluations and things. We didn't get an evaluation. We just got an automatic diagnosis. ADHD, OCD, ODD, things like that. And here's some medication. So those were barriers. And the teachers, um, he was even put out of a school and told this ki- this school, yes, we cater to kids with disabilities, but not EBD. And I was like, what is EBD? I don't even know what EBD is. And she's like, emotionally disturbed. We don't cater to them. And I was like, oh, what does that mean? And this was another Black woman. Mm. So it was like really disturbing, but this is what happens. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's incredible. I cannot even imagine having to be there at school all day, every day with, with my kids. I I mean, yeah. How could you work? How could you take care of the other kids? That's incredible. Huh? What a huge, oh, well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that, I think those are things that many people, unless they hear the voices of those who are affected, wouldn't know that kind of stuff's happening, you know, and that that's out there. Um, so one of the things that we like to do when we're, when, when we're interviewing authors on this podcast is kind of look, not just talk about the content of the article, but also a little bit about the process. And there's always a journey 
that goes into writing an article like this, especially when it's participatory and, you know, includes the voices of many different people. So one of the questions I like to ask is, were there any memorable aspects or events or experiences as you wrote this article? It could be funny, exciting discoveries, new opportunities or collaborations. But as you pulled this project together, which has been, you know, almost probably over a year long process, at least working with the journal, and it may have existed well before that too. Um, but were there any memorable aspects of writing your article? And why don't we start with you this time, Ida, since you were one of the participants? Um, anybody can tell you, Elizabeth is amazing. Um, so she took the lead on everything. And during the process of writing the article or trying to put everything together, at the same time, I was trying to launch um Sankofa Midwest. So I'm trying to launch this at the same time. Her and her team, who's also part of co-authors for this article, they're um training and supporting me in the framework for this. So at the same time we're co-authoring, where they're mentoring me. I'm attending the Sankofa I say family, um, support. And I mean, at the same time, she's like co-author, coach, support. I mean, she's playing all roles for me. I think she, for a minute, she was mom for me because everything I needed, she was there like supporting me in it. So we've like gained a great relationship. We're on different sides of the country, but we've gained a great relationship and we like bonded over the article, the launch of Sankofa and our children in the community. So that's most memorable for me. Yeah. So most of our listeners aren't going to know what Sankofa is. Can you, can you share a little bit about what that is? I'll let Elizabeth share that. Okay. All right. We'll let Elizabeth I'll, do that. <laughs> I'll start it off, but Ida could also uh, uh, add. Um, so Sankofa so first of all, just to kind of give you a little bit of a background and history to uh, the group, but also the meaning. So uh, the group that uh, Ida was referring to was actually started in 2015 um, at the UC Davis Mind Institute. And it started directly as a result from focus groups and interviews that um, I and other members of our, our faculty um, did as a result of wanting to get to know various research projects and really wanting to get to know more of what um, our Black community members needed from our institution. Um, and so as a result of those intentional discussions and uh, partnerships, uh, we formulated a group for families uh, Black families who have children with developmental disabilities. And we were first under a, a different name, a long acronym, and we realized that wasn't working. And so we went back as, as, a, as a team, as a group, um, and said, okay, what would be a name that would be appropriate? And we decided on the word Sankofa. And the word Sankofa actually comes from um, the Twi language that's from, from Ghana, um, West Africa, and uh, it means go back and fetch it. And so Sankofa is a concept and really an ideology that was that predates our group, predates, you know, I'm, I'm talking, you know, 
hundreds of years ago, right? And the whole idea is our group is about uh, doing, having the mission of giving back to our community, right? So the information that we have, the resources that we have, uh, any type of ideas and supports that we've been given, we want to share with our community members. And that really aligns with the Sankofa uh, ideas. And so when we decided on that name, which like I said, is so much bigger than, you know, just our group, we realized that, you know, we were also joining in in a bigger concept, right? A bigger movement. And so that's the reason why we're excited about the idea to be able to help spread the framework that we use. Um, so we're currently in the in the in the process of um, modulizing our, our Sankofa framework um, so that we can be able to share with other sets and with other um, institutions um, and organizations that really want to do this work. And Ida and uh, her team at the, the um, Wisconsin said and Lynn were one of the, the first to partner with us to help uh, really help pilot this uh, endeavor. So she can talk a little bit about uh, the work that's being done in Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. So what about the stuff that's happening in Wisconsin? So is this a group, I guess I can ask a follow-up before I turn it over to you, Ida. Is this a group that exists nationally or is it just in several locations? Good question. So it's a group that can exist nationally and internationally. Right now we are centered in Northern California. So we're the, um, the only support group for Black families um, in Northern California, of children with, with disabilities um, in Northern California. But because of the pandemic, uh, we have now a virtual uh, presence, right? So most of our meetings now are virtual, um, whereas they were in person before and we provided childcare, we provided food uh, for families through grants that we were able to receive. Um, but because we're now virtual for, we have two meetings uh, per year in person right now, um, but we have people call, call in from all all over. So we have people that call in from, uh, you know, Washington State, from Florida, from Wisconsin, from New York, from Virginia. There'll be people that call from all over the place now. And so, and of course, Southern California. So it's a it's a wonderful opportunity just to be a connecting fiber um, and unit uh, for families who for so long, uh, and which is the reason why we started the group, have just felt so isolated, doubly isolated, right? So isolated from, you know, not only not feeling like they were heard by providers and practitioners, but also feeling isolated from their own family members because of not uh, knowing how to talk about disability and how disability, there's still stigma associated with disability in our community. So there needed to be that space and Sankofa's been able to fill that need. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. Well, and so I should tell readers that um, if you want to know more about Sankofa, they do talk about it in the article. It's totally worth going to get a good overview there and um, to kind of get a, a perspective on um, on sort of the role and the function and the and the structure of the group. Um, so, you know, so Sankofa, I think, leads into my next question here, which is really your articles about how um, researchers, educators, service providers can build partnerships with Black families. Um, what are some methods as you've explored this topic that researchers and educators and providers can do that? How, how can they be more effective in building partnerships? Um, I'll, hi I'll hop in for that too. I think, okay. you know, what the article says and, you know, 
is so important. It's about relationship and it's about really building uh, partnerships that are not superficial, right? That have deep connections and roots um, and that we are really you know, providing not only just a seat at the table, but also power and influence, right, from uh, people in the communities. Uh, so it's it's actually real stake, right? And I think that 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 means that for you know providers and institutions, um, there's going to have to really be points where you're going to have to look at your institutions, look at your boards, look at your practices, and say, okay, what have we done? that and what are we doing to be able to address this in a meaningful way? Um, and so, you know, that is the, you know, the work that that has to happen. And it's not going to be comfortable or fun, but it's necessary if you're really uh, serious about doing uh, work to address uh, systemic uh, oppression such as racism, sexism, classism, ableism, you know, all of the all of the oppressions that really keep uh, people from being able to have access. So I think that that's, you know, the first thing that we need to really address in order yeah. to do that. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Ida? What are some things that people have done to effectively sort of build partnerships with you and your family? Yeah, I, I have to agree with Elizabeth, actually have stake in it and really invest in it. And, you know, as what is it that you want? Be a true partner. Don't research me. Um, we all are researchers. We all want to know something. And what's the value of research? Not to just the researcher, but the one who you are trying to research. What value does this have? And for me, dissemination is really important. You've done research on me or you've done research with me. I, I still want to know what the results are. And I want to, I want the whole thing to be transparent. Transparency is good because I've signed up for something. And at any point where it comes to, it's not what I signed up for. I, I'd like to know so we can at least work this out. So honesty and transparency and a true partnership. Go ahead, Elizabeth. I was going to also add to that. Um, so we have to, if, if you're doing research in communities of color, and in particular in Black and brown communities, I think that as researchers, we have to acknowledge the fact that we need to do it differently if, if we're going to counter uh, the the harm that has been done to these communities. So it really cannot be about taking away any more that has that has already been taken. We've taken enough. It's about giving to the community, right? So if if you're getting information, you're also giving resources. You're giving uh, information. You're giving opportunity. Um, you're giving. Uh, you know, influence and power to decisions that are being made in in our institutions, right? So, you know, I think if we are, like Ida said, you know, really partnering, then we, we have to recognize, you know, that by just taking from 
you know, our communities and uh, not giving back, we are doing more of the same, right? Yeah. We're doing more harm and continuing in the same in the same thing, which is really the reason why many communities of color dis distrust our institutions for very good reasons. Um, because not only historically we've harmed, but also we've done nothing to address it and to correct it. Well, I mean, I do think it's important to acknowledge that um, historically, right, institutions of higher ed and other research organizations have been about taking knowledge and using it to elevate, right, privileged voices and not giving back to the communities where that knowledge potentially came from. And so, yeah, it's a big shift in that dynamic of research, and that requires you know, retraining, I think the researchers as well is to right. how do you do this in a way that um, is empowering and that elevates and, um, and provides opportunity and doesn't just take away and then leave the community again at a loss. So yeah, but there is an, a, a long unfortunate history <laughs> along those lines. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that's why I think your article is so incredibly important because it provides a practical example of what this look like, of what this can look like. So kind of along those lines, um, you've talked about, right, having the participants be stakeholders, be involved. Um, are there some other practical examples of policies or practices that um, researchers or even service providers, schools could use to elevate the voices of Black families? And why don't we, can we start with you on that one, Ida? Well, a lot of times, um, I think like community advisory boards or councils or core councils, things of that nature, or um, parent student advisory boards, things where they can get together. Um, for my son's school, I was there all the time anyway. So, I would meet with parents who had children who had concerns for their children's development and things like that. I would meet with the parents and we would talk and I would suggest services and resources that they could use to help. But at the same time, I would talk to the teachers and other staff members about resources and things like that. They need to make things like that available because it's not just teaching the parents or the, the teachers just teaching the students, staff need to be taught. The parents need to be taught as well as the children because disability is something that everybody in the world is going to have to deal with. So everybody needs to be educated on it. And it shouldn't be something that has to be normalized. It should be normal because this is another part of life. So schools need to, or us as a community need to be educated as one and integrate that into the school system. Perfect. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more on the disability as normal. That's actually what my class is called. <laughs> we seem to treat it as an exception, right? And that this is something that's, that's rare and doesn't happen often. And yet at some point in our life, we're all going to acquire right a temporary or a permanent disability it's just the nature of being human so yeah thank you so dr morgan what are your thoughts what are some practical examples of policies or practices that you found elevate the voices of black families 
Yeah, I think Ida said it perfectly. And, you know, I would just add that, you know, recognizing that Black families are the answer, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not about, you know, trying to find a solution. Um, Black families have the answer, right? There's a great amount of resilience within the community um, that in navigational skills and advocacy skills that have been able to, you know, really be bred and fostered throughout, you know, so many years. And so Black families have a wealth of information, a wealth of resources um, that really are not, that are discounted, right, and not appreciated um, in our systems. And so, you know, just really having that paradigm shift is really important, right, into recognizing, to recognize our implicit and explicit biases that uh, are associated with that. Um, I think another piece um, is to really think about and address, you know, how intersectionality impacts Black families, right? So how, yep. uh, when they're when they have a child with a disability, um, you know, the understanding and awareness of that disability, like you all said, understanding um, how to be able to uh, uh, really. Uh, recognize that a part of their role is to really advocate and help manage and support their child in gaining their own advocacy um, for themselves, right? And so I think that intersectionality piece is really important and um, really supporting our families. And that that means that, you know, training for not only families, but for providers is key. Right. So uh, across the board, we need the type of training, the type of uh, supports that will uh, allow that to happen. And I think the the last thing I think with recommendation that we gave in the article um, really talks about providing spaces, safe spaces for families to be able to have conversations and network and gain uh, culturally sensitive and relevant uh, information to so that they can be able to use that as tools for advocacy. And so I think spaces like Sankofa um, are are, the, are examples of that. Um, and so we need to make sure that we have those spaces available uh, for families, ran by families and for families um, in our institutions. Yeah. That's, yeah. Well, that, that kind of answers my next question, which is what is the main message you would like readers to take from the article? I think you've kind of you've kind of summarized that really well there. But um, is there are there any other ideas that we haven't touched on that you feel like um, you'd like to highlight? <laughs> That's OK. I think one of the things that we haven't touched on and we, we've kind of but I think what's important, yeah. I think to make it really plain is that um, the the authorship even on our article was really intentional. So we have all of the Black mothers that were pivotal in starting our, both of the programs are at the front of the authorship, right? And so we have various, our our USED directors and Lynn directors who are amazing researchers took the, the last places on the author list because it was really intentional about making sure that those who um, had the most stake in the involvement of, the, uh, you know, really doing the work were positionally centered, right? And so I think that, you know, that's a, a big piece when we're thinking about doing work with 
communities, we're really making sure that they actually have a center stage, right? And that they have their voices amplified. And so we, you know, uh, even within the article, we really fought to do something really unconventional, which was include pictures of the participant or not even the, the, the leaders, the mother advocates that were a part of this. And Ida was one of them. And it really was because we wanted to make sure that we were centering their experiences and their voices. Um, and that's uplifting them, um, which is really different than what research traditionally does. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I have to ask Ida, is this your first formal research publication? <laughs> it is my very first. And um, I was shocked that I was included every step of the way, because usually if I'm part of, you know, writing a grant or whatever in past, it was like, oh, we only need you for this part. And, you know, that was it. But instead I was included and I'm like, I don't know what this means. So I'm asking the researchers or whoever, like, I don't know what this means, but I felt comfortable enough to say to them, I don't know what this means. And they come back and take time out and say, well, this means this, this, and that. And this isn't here because of this, this, and that. So I felt that we were working together as a team. So it, it won't be my last article. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, it is, I'm glad that you brought that up because it is um, definitely different within traditional academic research, right? Most participants are anonymous, participant A, given pseudonyms, you have no idea who they are. And the fact that you've been able to, right, be involved in that process, have your name on the article is a pretty significant paradigm shift. I think, you know, from the outside, oh, it's just, it's a couple names and some pictures, but in the overall scheme of things, it's a really big change in the way that we view research and who can do research and who can publish research even. So, yeah, no, we're actually quite privileged to that you chose to work with us and publish in the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal. We're really honored to, to be involved in that and to help support that work. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. Yeah. So uh, two more questions here. But the first question I ask this to everybody, what motivates you to do this work? Why do you do what you do? Things continuing to be like they are. That's what motivates me. One day I see it changing and I know I probably won't see it in my time, but eventually it'll change. But you've seen your efforts make a change in your in your family's life. Definitely seen a change. And um, I'm family peer mentor with Wisconsin Lind, and we get trainees through there, future professionals. So I believe it starts at the root and, you know, the tree grows yep. and eventually we train them, their future professionals, and it'll get better. It will. <laughs> I totally agree. So what about you, Dr. Morgan? What motivates you to do this work? Why do you do what you do? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I really feel that because of my experience of being both a, you know, a teacher and administrator and then also a parent, um, you know, I see all the problems and I've seen them um, from multiple vantage points and I'm interested in being a part of the solution. 
Um, and I also am interested in doing things uh, differently. Uh, and so that means really wanting to be a transformative leader. Um, I think of even my work as, um, you know, I, I'm a mother scholar and that before, you know, scholarship, I'm a mother and I'm a parent. And I understand that, you know, the work that we're talking about, it's not just, you know, words on a paper. We're talking about lives. We're talking about, uh, you know, human beings and their opportunities in life and their how services and and early assessments and diagnoses are associated with those things and how, you know, when they don't have them, how that really does impact the quality of life of a, of a person and the opportunities that they have. And so, you know, I really want to be that kind of transformative leader. Um, I even think about it as far transformative mothering, you know, engaging in uh, really seeking to change not my child, but seeking to change the world that my child is in, right? And yeah. other children in my community are in um, because we really do need to do that in order to be able to address and, and, and make make this a better place for all of us. Yeah. Well, and I mean, as you bring that up, both of you, I mean, this is a big shift in the way that we view mothers and the way that we view uh, researchers and everything else. The idea, you know, historically, I think, at least from a professional standpoint, we've expected people, right, to divorce their personal life from their professional life. And as we come to understand identity and the impact it has on it and the role that it plays within our professional life, you know, being able to marry those two and make them work together to the accomplishment, I think, of more human ends is just so incredibly um, refreshing. <laughs> Instead of ignoring, oh, I'm a mother of kids with disabilities, but I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to focus on this over here. I mean, being able to have those together, I think, is uh, much, much healthier. So, <laughs> well, Matthew, I, I was going to say just, you know, just to that, you know, compartmentalizing and siloing ourselves is yep. inauthentic. It is. Right. It's not authentic. And so I think that, you know, we have been trained, right, as, as scientists, as, you know, and empirical investigators that, you know, uh, you want to be objective. And to do that means that you're completely removed from the project. But that never has been the case. Right. If anything, yep. It, yep. you know, the researcher is always a tool of the product of, of is a research instrument, right? Involved in the design and the analysis of any project that you do. And so, you know, just being honest about that process forthright, I think really adds to the trustworthiness and the rigor of any projects that we decide to, to do. Um, because, you know, and, and it really adds breath and depth to any project that we interact with. So I really do appreciate that, that comment. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And I mean, the, the, the experience, and especially I think within your article, the experience that, that you and that Ida and that the rest of the, uh, the authors bring to this and the fact that it's lived experience makes it so much more powerful than some objective researcher reporting on some abstract them out there. <laughs> Okay, well, last question here. And this is one I love to ask. What is one thing that you've been doing recently to make your work more inclusive and accessible? Um, so I think a part of uh, 
my quest in order to be able to make sure that, you know, the work that I do is more accessible is, you know, things like this. I think it's so great that this podcast is available um, to be able to really help translate and make plain uh, research projects. Um, Ida and myself have done other presentations. Uh, we just recently did a presentation for the African-American Conference on Disabilities. Um, we're doing a, a, another presentation um, for um, Ida, remind me where we're going in MTIP. Thank you. <laughs> so we'll be doing that uh, together. Um, and as well as, you know, just the fruit of other projects that uh, can that can come out. And so I think that's a, a big part of if you're doing community work, uh, you want to make sure that the community has access to it. Right. And so it's not just this esoteric, you know, piece that, you know, only uh, people in the academy or people in, you know, various higher education institutions will have access to. And so that's another thing I really appreciated about the DDNJ uh, journal of having plain language um, uh, requirements when it comes to the abstract. And I think, you know, we want to move to that overall, right? Just making sure that our articles are accessible um, and as well as the information when it comes to uh, being disseminated, that is disseminated, uh, you know, to our community. So one thing that I'm doing actually this weekend is I will be uh, presenting at a local school district. They're having a conference for Black families. And I'll be presenting, you know, kind of pulling it, pulling in some of this stuff, but also just overall talking to families about how advocacy and how we're talking about uh, IDEA and uh, disability rights. The root of those are have come from civil rights legislation, which, you know, are directly connected to our community and many people within our community were a part of that legislation happened. So we're, you know, at the root of these things. And so our children and also us should have access to this information because um, we've been a part of that. And so it's just really making things plain, um, and as well as making that concerted effort to really make those partnerships uh, connect with community stakeholders and be involved and have a, a real vested interest in the welfare of our community. So I think that's a big part of what I try to do. Well, thank you for that comprehensive response. And I totally agree. I mean, that's the reason that we do this podcast is very few people are actually going to go read a journal article and yet we feel like this information is so important that you know we've got to put it out there in multiple formats to make sure that people who want it can actually get it because i'll tell you what i'm even afraid of reading journal articles okay ida what about you what's one thing you've been doing to make your work more inclusive and accessible well um i talked to the people in my community so i work for um, UW Madison Weisman Center, but I am um, satellite employee. So I actually live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And a lot of work is done at Weisman Center, but um, Milwaukee, they don't quite see everything that happens out there. So instead, what's going on there, I bring it out to the community. I'm in community engagement. So to make sure they get what's going on there and they get the benefits of what's going on there and make sure I bring it back here to the community and make sure that community partners and stakeholders here in Milwaukee are involved in what's going on there. Like we have groups that's integrated learning. They can learn about the same thing that they're learning about in Dane County and put the input of 
what's going on here in Milwaukee and learn better ways to make it work and give input to help what goes on and works in Dane County. So, you know, we kind of put it together because things don't quite function as a state. Instead, it breaks down by county how it works, but maybe we can make things more cohesive and accessible for everybody, no matter which county. Yeah, no, and Wisconsin's always been that way, hasn't it? <laughs> I remember doing work with Wisconsin many years ago, and the counties are so incredibly powerful there. But every state's different. Every state approaches the work differently and requires, yeah, different different mindset, different strategies, different tactics. But Well, I want to thank both of you for your time today. This has been just such an enlightening conversation. So Ida is one of the participants and authors on this paper, but who are some of the other participants and authors who've contributed to this project? Yeah, thank you for that question. We actually have several uh, amazing uh, authors on our on our pro project on this particular project, including uh, my two colleagues at the Mind Institute, um, which include Benita Shaw. She's a, a strong parent advocate and community stakeholder in our Sacramento community. Uh, Dr. Jasmine Burns, who has been at uh, the Mind Institute for several years, but now actually is uh, practicing in Texas. Uh, we have uh, Shafan King, who is a parent. Uh, navigator and a strong advocate within her community in Wisconsin with Ida. Um, and then our uh, two uh, directors. So Amon Stammer, who is the LIND and USAID director for the UC Davis Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities at the Mind Institute. Uh, and Gail Children, who is uh, the director uh, at, for our the Wisconsin Lynn. Um, so all of uh, us were able to really come together, bring our ideas, um, and just really help make this paper what it is, which is something that we're all extremely proud of. Well, it's it's an incredible team, and honestly, it's an incredible paper. Um, I get the privilege of reading all of them, and so does Alex, and uh, I learned just such an incredible amount through through your paper and just your approach. And I mean, and even this conversation, I mean, I think that the way that you're approaching this and it is just so important to talk about and to acknowledge and to promote. And anyway, I'm just going to encourage everyone, go, go read the article. It will be linked in the show notes. That's all I can say. Go read the article, download the podcast, listen to that too, listen to it two or three times. There you go. You'll be a better researcher for it. <laughs> Uh, well, anything else that you would like to cover? No, just thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, well, thank you both for taking time out of your day to talk to us. So that's it for our conversation today. I would like to thank my guests, Dr. Elizabeth Morgan and Ida Winters for their time and for their insights. I hope that you found the conversation as uh, interesting and insightful as I did. I really enjoyed visiting and getting to know both of them, both of our guests, much better than I did before. I would also like to thank DDNJ Managing Editor and Author Insight Podcast Producer, Alex Shewal, for her hard work to get this podcast out. 
Alex um, has been the managing editor for a little bit here, and she actually helped us get out the special issue on DEI, and we're excited to have her more integrally involved with DDNJ. So if you want to email us, you can. Uh, the email address for DDNJ is editor.ddnj at aggies.usu.edu. I know that's kind of long. I'll do it again. Editor.ddnj at aggies.usu.edu. Um, and Alex is the one who answers those. So if you have questions about the podcast, about the journal, about the authors, whatever, Alex um, will answer your emails quickly. So please feel free to reach out. We would also like to thank the Utah State University Institute for Disability Research Policy and Practice for their financial and in-kind support for this podcast and for the journal. The journal also receives support from the Utah State University Libraries and Digital Commons, and we are grateful for their ongoing efforts to help us keep this running. As I mentioned earlier, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, again, wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review, and please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Your shares especially make a big difference in getting the word out about this work that's being done. You can learn more about the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal at our website, which is digitalcommons.usu.edu backslash ddnj, or you can just go to your favorite browser and type in ddnj. I believe it comes up as the first uh, result now. You can also download a podcast transcript in English and Spanish for this conversation and all of our past conversations. And you can learn more about our podcast guests at the Institute for Disability Research Policy and Practices webpage, and that is idrpp.usu.edu. And on that page, you'll find a separate page dedicated to the journal and the podcast. So we'd encourage you to go there, find pictures of our guests. Um, and learn a little bit more about the podcast and the journal. So with that said, thanks so much for tuning in today. Thanks so much. Keep up the great work. You are all making a difference, and we want you to know that what you do matters. Please tune in next month for our next conversation, which is with Dr. Tawara Good from Georgetown University. And with that said, have a great rest of your day. <music>